Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the latest in a never-ending series of Barclay Memorial Lectures. Um, Clifford Barclay was an entrepreneur and financier who was a governor of the school for many years, and his son, Stephen Barclay, is now on the LSE Council, and the family have supported this lecture series for a long time, mainly having distinguished professors in the school and giving them an opportunity to talk perhaps more broadly about their subject than they would normally do. And this evening, we're delighted to have someone whom I am only just getting used to thinking of as Judge Sir Christopher Greenwood. Uh, until recently, he was here just as an ordinary common or garden law professor um, whom I could, as a head of department of the law department recently, uh, I could sort of order him around. But now, of course, I must bow and scrape and tug my forelock appropriately. Um, but here we are tonight, really, in a sense, to get to the bottom of a mystery. How is it that a man in the prime of his life, with a glittering academic career ahead of him, in what is now officially, according to the government's assessment, the best law department in the country, how could such a man decide to throw all that up and go and sit on some obscure court um, <laughs> in a flat country uh, <laughs> in the soon-to-break-up Eurozone. Um, well, perhaps we may learn some insights into this mysterious decision uh, as Chris tonight talks to us about how can international law change the world. I think he is in a slightly betwixt and between state uh, in this he is, has stopped sort of being a law professor, but hasn't quite become a judge. Uh, so you catch him at an interesting moment uh, when he is entitled to reflect, certainly on the broader issues, though of course not on individual cases which might be coming up before the court. But I don't know quite what he's going to say, so I shall stop there and hand over to Chris. Thank you. Thank you very much, Howard, ladies and gentlemen. Um, the answer to your question, why did I give it all up, is simple, Howard. If you'd mentioned the glittering academic career I had in front of me a few weeks ago, I might not have done. It's so sad that you only got round to mentioning that at this late stage. Um, I, I am also now not strictly any longer in a betwixt and between state. I have taken up my position as a judge at the International Court. Therefore, I am not in that unhappy position of not being paid either by the University or by the United <laughs> Nations. Um, the Director said that this was the latest in a long line of Le Clifford Barclay lectures given by professors at the school. Um, some of you, particularly those from the Law Department who were here last week, may feel that it is simply the latest in a long line of Christopher Greenwood's farewell lectures. <laughs> um, I shall, however, I promise you, endeavour to say something different from what I said last week in uh, the dinner uh, for the alumni. Clifford Barclay was not only a generous benefactor to the LSE, he was a real friend of the school and an enthusiast for everything the school did. It's therefore a particular honour to be invited to give this lecture in his memory, and I'm very grateful to his family and to the school for inviting me to do so. 
both in his business interests and in his interests in the university. Clifford Barclay would have been well aware of the fact that the community in which we live and work today is more international than it has ever been in the past. It's appropriate, therefore, that tonight's lecture should say something about the role of law within that international community. Now, let me say straight away what I, I'm going to be talking about when I refer to international law. It's not the law of other states. Um, this is one of the great misconceptions particularly favored by those who choose to study international law in the hope of getting free trips to as many interesting places as possible. Having made that mistake many years ago, I can tell you from experience uh, that international law is in fact the law that applies between states rather than within any one country. It's to be found today in a growing number of treaties or agreements between states, and sometimes between states and international organizations like the UN, and in a body of unwritten principles which we refer to as customary international law. What does it deal with? Well, it deals first and foremost with those areas of activity where the interests of one state bump up against the interests of another, whether in the form of physical boundaries, such as the boundary between the land territory of two states, or trying to find a dividing line between their maritime spaces, or boundaries of a, a jurisdictional character. For example, to what extent is the United States entitled to treat as criminal the activities of a banker here in the United Kingdom? And it's in these areas where the interests of one state can easily clash with the interests of another, where one sovereignty is juxtaposed against another, that international law has its most important part to play. But it also deals, as we'll see, with areas of international cooperation, areas where it's not a matter of one state's interests conflicting with another, but rather that the only solution to a particular problem has to be found in some kind of societal action, some kind of group activity. A technical but nonetheless very important example would be international air transport. Uh, the director, who seems to spend a large amount of his time flying between Britain and far-flung places, uh, tells me that he arrived back here only this morning from Singapore, having managed to get himself one of those first-class suites on Singapore Airlines that I've never managed to travel on, <laughs> and previous to that had flown from Hong Kong to Singapore. Now that flight is made possible by a number of things. It's made possible by the fact that Blériot realized that although what goes up will eventually come down, you can adjust the time when it comes down and rather more importantly the manner of its coming down. But it's also possible because of the network of international agreements which tie states in to a consensual system for air transport and allows an aircraft registered in one country to fly over the territory of another and to land at the airport of a firm. Now there has been a vast expansion of international law in recent decades. In some respects, that simply reflects the expansion that has taken place in law generally. You find it in this country as well. 150 years ago, the Prime Minister, after winning a general election, was asked what his programme was going to be, and he replied with patrician disdain, what sort of program did you have in mind? We might have a little law reform, but we can't go on adding to the statute book forever, you know. Now, sadly, his successors didn't see it like that. 
And we now have this vast body of British domestic legislation. And to a large extent, that has been mirrored by a growth in international uh, treaty law in particular. But it's not just that there is more law. There are more areas of activity regulated by law than there used to be. So the last few years have seen, for example, the emergence of bodies like the World Trade Organization and a very substantial body of legal regulation of the extent to which one state can impose tariff, quota, or other barriers on another, opening up matters such as public procurement policy in different states, though with differing degrees of success. Human rights has been an area in which international law has been transformed in the years since the Second World War. Environmental law, a subject that nobody talked about at all when I was a student in the 1970s, now one of the major concerns of international lawyers today. So if that is what international law is, can it change the world? Now, I have to let you in on a secret here. As somebody who spent his entire adult life teaching international law, practicing international law, and now taking on a job as a judge of international law, I'm not going to say no as the answer to that question. Um, I follow the well-trodden path of the, the academic or the erstwhile academic, never break your own rice bowl in public. <laughs> but I do have to admit that I slightly regret having picked this title. I picked it more than a year ago. Today, with the worldwide banking crisis, global recession, the threat of climate change, global warming, terrorism, a better title might have been can international law save the world? But the question that I did pose, and I'm going to have to stick with it, the question I did pose gets very different answers from different groups of people. And it's perhaps worth looking at four of the main schools of thought on this subject. I'll call the first one the dreamers or the romantics. The dreamers were in their heyday just over 100 years ago at the Hague Peace Conferences in 1899 and 1907. Large numbers of men and a smaller number of women went to those conferences firmly believing that if they got the law right, they could replace war with peaceful international adjudication. Not just some of the time, but for all situations, forever. They could, in Tennyson's words, produce a world in which the kindly earth shall slumber lapped in universal law, the closing line of one of the famous stanzas of his poem, Locksley Hall. And those dreamers weren't to be found only in the ranks of what we'd now call the NGOs that attended the conferences. Many of the governmental delegates believed this as well. And indeed, not just in the early part of the 20th century. Many went on believing it. President Truman, who's responsible for the creation of the United Nations, only 40 years later, kept a copy of that, that part of Loxley Hall in his wallet for most of his adult life. Now, the dream was certainly a noble one, but no one would suggest we have come anywhere near realizing it. And that leads on to the second group. If my first group, the dreamers, would answer the question, can international law change the world, by saying enthusiastically, yes, of course it can. And this is how. The second group are the disappointed, the dreamers who've seen that they didn't get what they dreamt about. 
those who wanted Loxley Hall's world of peaceful slumber and are frustrated that it hasn't materialized. Now their answer is they would like to change international law to change the world. They think it should change the world, but they're fed up that it hasn't done and they've lost faith in whether it can. And then we have the third group, the cynics, the realist school as they prefer to be known, epitomized by Hans Morgenthau in the years just after the Second World War. The cynical school maintain this is all complete nonsense. States will always act in their own national self-interest. Always has been like that, always will be like that. And for most of them, though not quite all, that's how it should be. So the idea of a system of law which somehow limits the ability of states to act in their own self-interest and makes them place some other goal above selfishness is simply utopian. It's unrealizable. Either the international legal system becomes just an extension of politics by other means on this analysis, or it is totally and utterly ineffectual. And then we have the fourth group, um, which is a rather crude offshoot from the cynics or realists. I'm not quite sure what to call them, so I've termed them the bloglodites, because you'll find their views most regularly expressed on the web blogs, and particularly some of those emanating from North America. These are people who not only think that Tennyson's goal is unachievable, they're absolutely determined that it's not going to be achieved. And they started worrying a bit about whether it might be. So they post uh, blogs in which they say that the United Nations has a covert plan to take away every American's firearm. Now, this will be news to the Secretary General of the United Nations. I don't think disarming the whole of the United States is in his intray at the moment. I don't see how it could be in his intray in terms either of the power that the UN has or the legal authority to act that it possesses. And in fact, that blog is a crude caricature of this view. But underneath it, there lies something rather more serious, a school of thought that is actually genuinely concerned about international law taking away some vital state rights and interests. Now, there is a pantomime quality, ladies and gentlemen, to this debate. You have, excuse me, you have one group saying, oh yes, it can change the world, and another group saying, oh no, it can't. But what all of these groups have in common is that they take an extreme version of what you might hope to achieve through international law. And then they judge international law by whether or not it has, in fact, achieved that extreme view. Now, I don't think that that is a particularly useful way of analyzing the situation. It's better, surely, to take a step back and ask ourselves, what can any system of law realistically hope to achieve? What is law for? What can it do? How do you measure its successes or its failures? Now, if you do that and you look at systems of national law as well as international law, a number of things become rather clear. First of all, the cynics may have thought they'd discovered something blindingly original when they started saying that states will always behave in the manner that they think best suits their self-interest. 
But that's exactly what everybody else does as well. It's what most people do. It's what corporations do. It's what national governments do. It's what local government does. It's what trade unions do. Now, they may be better or worse at identifying what their self-interest is. Their self-interest may be viewed in an enlightened or an unenlightened way. But they are nevertheless essentially seeking to achieve their own self-interest, their own personal goals. Another thing which becomes clear if one looks at legal systems as a whole is that the idea that a legal system is or is not political is a grotesque oversimplification. It's often said that international law is highly politicized. But of course, one essential part of the legal process is always highly political, and that is the making of law. Law emerges not through some mystical process, but because a political process through a legislature creates new law. And there's nothing the matter with that. It's as it should be. Where politicization of law is fundamentally wrong is if it infiltrates into the process of adjudicating rights. If courts, if arbitration tribunals, those who have to apply the law, sacrifice the application of a good faith understanding of the law for some political self-interest or political gain. And that's where the real danger lies. And the third point which becomes clear is that no legal system can be better than the society which it serves. The stronger and more cohesive the society, then almost always the better the legal system which it will produce. Now, in part, that's a matter of legal institutions. It's a matter of having a strong legislature, a strong court system. It's no accident, for example, that when Henry II embarked upon a program which transformed the nature of British governance, or English governance, I should say, he began by ensuring that his own judges, the king's courts, dominated the legal system and could prevail over any feudal baron's legal authority. So strong legal institutions are a critical part of this process, but they're not the whole story. At the time that it imposed prohibition after the First World War, the United States had extraordinarily strong legal institutions. It had a very strong and vibrant democratic tradition, a strong Congress, a fairly strong presidency, and a very powerful court system indeed. Yet prohibition was a complete disaster. It lasted barely 12 years, and despite all the support which had existed for it at the outset, despite the attempts to enforce it by those who passionately believed in it, it simply proved unworkable. In practice, law will only help to bring about change within a society if it is in some way in tune with the general views, the general current of that society. You perhaps see a good example of how that can work and a generation later in the United States with the way in which segregation in the southern USA was broken down. The process of breaking the segregation in states like Mississippi and Alabama was the result of a mixture of some incredibly courageous decisions on the part of judges in the, mainly the federal courts in those states. Judges who often lived very isolated and very threatened lives. Some of you may have read the obituary a little while ago of Frank Johnson, who was one of the district judges in Alabama. 
Johnson was responsible for some of the most important desegregation uh, judicial decisions. He was a keen golfer, but no golf club was prepared to admit him as a member because of his views on the race question. So every Saturday he played golf on his own at Montgomery Air Force Base. They had to let him play there because he was a federal judge and this was a federally owned facility. But nobody was prepared to actually go round the golf course with him for most of his life. But those judicial decisions, the legislation which Congress eventually passed on equal rights, have to be seen in the context of a change in political will at the federal level to enforce those laws, and gradually a change in attitudes and opinions in most of the key states concerned. The process was a symbiotic one. Without the law, it couldn't have happened, but the law alone was not going to produce it. And one final observation, if I may, in that area, and that is that fundamental change in societies, as opposed to incremental change, is really quite rare. It tends to come about only when there has been a dramatic political upheaval, such as a civil war. And as we'll see, the same is true in the international arena. Now, certain features of international society are very important in this respect. The first one we perhaps need to think about is, is there such a thing as international society or an international community at all? Professor Posner of the University of Chicago was an emphatic believer that there wasn't. There could be no international law and no world court because there simply wasn't any international society. Now, I think if you dig a bit deeper, that's a little bit like Margaret Thatcher's famous comment of 20 or so years ago, that there's no such thing as society. She meant rather more and perhaps rather less than she was quoted as saying. The same, I think, is true of Posner. Of course, international society is not like US society or British society or Japanese society. But to suggest that there is no such thing as international society at all is very strange because you do have 192 countries. They do interact one with the other. People do move between them. Their legal systems do bump up against one another. And there are international courts and institutions to enforce the international laws those governments agree upon. So a society of some kind, yes. But it is a rather strange-looking society, if, that is, you expect it to look like the society of the United Kingdom or the USA. If you look, first of all, at its legislative capacity, there is no parliament in international society. There's no legislature which can pass a statute binding on everyone, whether they voted for it or against it. Instead, there is the process of law being agreed upon voluntarily in the form of treaties. But of course, a state can choose to become a party to one of those treaties or not. There is no legal requirement to comply with the Rio treaties on climate change, for example, unless the state chooses to sign up to them. The only law that binds everyone, irrespective of their choice, is the, are the principles of customary international law. Another problem with the legislative process in international society is that there's an element of chaos about it, in the sense that each treaty tends to be negotiated in isolation from what is going on in other parts of the legal process. I think there has been a very substantial effort to avoid that, particularly on the part of some governments. But Ten years ago, for example, when I was researching uh, for the Pinochet case, which we were about to argue, I had to look into the way in which the Convention Against Torture had been drafted. 
And it's plain that that treaty was negotiated through the middle 1980s without any regard whatsoever to the question of sovereign immunity. And likewise, discussions of sovereign immunity at the time were carried on without anyone looking at the question of how this would apply in the case of somebody who was charged with a crime under international law. All too often, you find cases where two different bits of international treaty law have been negotiated in complete isolation, one from the other. Now, that does happen in domestic law as well. Anyone who's tried to reconcile listing building, listed building regulations with disabled access, fire safety legislation, or health and safety of employees will know that a certain amount of chaos is inherent in any legislative process. But it's more advanced in international law than it is elsewhere. Secondly, there's a big difference in adjudication because there is no system of compulsory courts in international law. The International Court of Justice, of which I'm a member, is entitled to hear cases between states only if those states have at some stage agreed to its jurisdiction. They might later regret that agreement, they might deny that it ever took place, but at some point there has to be an agreement that this dispute is one which falls within, or this category of disputes, is one which falls within the jurisdiction of the court. And then there's a difficulty about enforcement of international law. There simply isn't the general machinery for enforcement that you find within the vast majority of states. And lastly, there is an issue in international law which doesn't really arise in the domestic legal setting at all, of competing legitimacies. Those who argue that a rule of international law should be disregarded often do so out of a passionate belief that there is a better legal system which they apply within their own country and which should be given priority. Now that's of course a view that I disagree with, but you don't really find any replica of that in debates about compliance with English law, French law and the like. Now these peculiarities are often seen as characteristics of international law, but it would be perhaps more accurate to say that they're features not of international law, but of the international legal system. In, sorry, of international society as a whole. International society has shown no enthusiasm for a system of majority rule or compulsory adjudication. And it, unless it does, you simply will not have those features. They're not something which can be created by courts or can be created by a piece of inspired writing by a professor. So if one looks at the question of can international law change the world, we're rather in the position of the man driving his big car, his Bentley, let us say, through some back roads in Ireland. He's totally lost. He stops and asks a man who's passing by, how would you get to Kilkenny? Ah, says the passerby, I wouldn't start from here. And that's exactly the position one is, one is in, in international law. We wouldn't start from here if we could avoid it. But starting from somewhere else would require vast political change. Now, that has been attempted on three occasions in the last two centuries. At the end of the Napoleonic Wars, the end of the First World War, and the end of the Second World War, there were serious attempts to rebuild international society's fundamentals from the ground up. It has to be said that they produced very mixed and really rather disappointing results. And there's very little sign of a willingness to effect such a radical change today, except perhaps 
in the context of limited regional experiments, such as that of the European Union. So it's more useful, I'd suggest to you, to consider what can be achieved with what we have at the moment. And the answer is a considerable amount can be achieved, and indeed is being achieved at the moment. We have far stronger legal institutions in international society today than we did before the Second World War, or even in the early 70s when I was studying law at university. The International Court of Justice, the year that I took my master's degree in international law, decided no cases at all. It had only one case on its books, and the following year it decided it didn't have jurisdiction over that case. Now its list is full. It's got cases from every part of the world, from a range of states that are certainly not the ones that would have had anything to do with the International Court three decades ago. The World Trade Organization is a vastly stronger legal institution than its predecessor, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. The Security Council, largely moribund for much of the 60s and 70s, the Vietnam War, for example, never made it to the agenda of the Security Council at all. Is today an extremely active body, perhaps the closest in many ways we have to anything like an international legislature. And the creation of the International Criminal Court and the specialized criminal tribunals for Yugoslavia and Rwanda have begun to chip away at the whole idea of individual impunity for violations of international law. But it's difficult to assess how effective international law can be if we just look at it in the abstract. I think it's more useful to consider it against a list of specific objectives. So what are the objectives which any legal system will seek to achieve? I think there are three that are critical to what a legal system seeks to do. The first, perhaps rather prosaic, is to hold the ring between competing parties. In the words of the old proverb, your right to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. There therefore has to be some way of establishing where one person's nose begins and where someone else's freedom to swing their fist ends. To some philosophers, such as Michael Oakeshott, this was perhaps the most important function that law had, holding, not trying to achieve some common goal, but leaving each person with the maximum freedom to pursue their own individual goals. Without doing so, at the gr grotesquely at the expense of others. But the second principal goal is to facilitate the achievement of certain common interests which simply cannot be achieved by individual action. And a good example in the international arena, as we'll see in a moment, is environmental protection. And the third goal, much more prominent today than it would have been a couple of hundred years ago, is that law should seek to protect the fundamental rights of the weak against the strong, and also to protect the fundamental rights of those who are perhaps not characterized as weak, but just ignored or marginalized within society. Now what I want to do in the last few minutes of this lecture is to ask to what extent can international law meet each of those objectives? If we look first of all at the objective of holding the ring between the competing interests of different parties. This was originally what international law was all about. International law was set up as a system of rules between states only. It didn't deal with the individual except in a very peripheral way. And its job 
was to ensure that competing sovereignties did not clash too violently one with the other. Now here, international law has, I think, a good story to tell in the last 50 or 60 years. If you look, for example, at boundary disputes, which almost invariably resulted in bitter political conflict in the past, and very often in war, there is an extraordinarily good record of achieving peaceful solution by court or by other uh, third-party means in the last uh, few decades. Now, that's not always a matter entirely of law. It may require a very considerable effort of political will as well. For example, if you drive today between Germany and France in the area of Alsace and Lorraine, one of the most heavily fought over parts of Europe, the only time you realize that you've crossed the border between Germany and France is when the road sign in the next town you come to is in a different language from the one that you've just left. It's extraordinary how political change there has knocked down the dispute about that border. But other parts of the world haven't been as fortunate. <coughs> and the International Court of Justice, in, for example, its decisions in the 80s between Libya and Chad, and in the 90s between Cameroon and Nigeria, defused very effectively two extremely acrimonious and violent border disputes between those countries. Perhaps even more striking in many ways, though less well known, is the achievement of international law in respect of maritime boundary disputes. Starting in the early 70s, we moved with dramatic speed from a world in which each state's rights over the waters by its coast extended only three miles out to sea. Chosen, I believe, because that was the range that a cannon could fire in the 17th century. The Norwegians had better cannon than everybody else because they had a four-mile territorial sea by historical compromise. But we moved in only a decade from that system to one in which rights extended to 200 miles from the coast or even further, turning the Mediterranean, for example, into an entirely closed sea. There's not a single part of those waters that isn't now claimed by one state or another. And that could have led to a modern-day maritime equivalent of the scramble for Africa of the late 19th century, with very considerable bitterness between competing states <coughs> chasing the resources that they considered to be their own. That that hasn't happened is very largely because there was available a body of rules for dealing with it, institutions that could apply those rules, and the political will to refer disputes to those mechanisms rather than dealing with them on a unilateral basis. The World Trade Organization has, I think, in a particularly difficult time, done far better than one could expect in terms of preventing a backsliding into quotas, tariffs, discriminatory barriers as a means of protectionism. Whether it will continue to have that effect in the recession that is now with us, we'll have to wait and see. But it has a far better chance of doing so than any of the more limited mechanisms which existed under the GATT. Then let's turn to the question of whether international law can change the world through better achieving societal interests, cooperative interests. I mentioned air transport a little bit earlier. That has been something of a success story in which international law has played a useful, if perhaps a subsidiary role. But the obvious problem case today is environmental protection. Now, the reason why this is so central to any discussion of this aspect of international law 
is that much of the work that needs to be done to protect the environment cannot be done by national action. It's something which requires action in global spaces involving large numbers of countries, perhaps all of them. And even in those areas where national action does make a difference, if there's not some form of cooperation, some form of harmonization, you run the risk of competing standards being imposed by different countries. Imagine a world in which a ship passing through the Mediterranean had to comply with completely different environmental standards every time it crossed a maritime boundary. Navigation would be impossible. But more seriously, that sort of approach encourages a race to the bottom at the time of recession and the use of environmental protection as an excuse for introducing disguised forms of protectionism. Now, I have to admit here that the way international law is made by agreement in the treaty-making process poses a really serious problem for any attempt to tackle climate change because there is no way of compelling states to come on board for a new treaty regime. The political will to do that has got to be found somewhere else. There's no legally coercive power available. But the fact that states are able to stay outside something like the Rio Treaty regime shouldn't blind us to what has been achieved in this area. For example, through the adoption of legally binding standards in relation to maritime pollution and a whole raft of other pollution problems over the space of the last few decades. The answer here seems to be that international law is not going to produce the change on its own, but it is an indispensable tool to ensuring that you have that change. And then thirdly, there's the question of rights, particularly the protection of the rights of the weak. Now this was not traditionally an area of interest for international law at all. The way a state treated its own citizens was considered to be a matter for that state and that state only. Ironically, an exception to that always existed in the area of the laws of war. But since 1945, there has been a dramatic change here, starting with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and then regional treaties like the European Convention, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights in 1966, and then a host of specialized treaties like the Convention Against Torture, uh, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. You had built up a body of international law which, if it is applied faithfully, radically transforms the relationship between the individual and the state. Now, how effective is that? I think it has a number of important achievements to its credit. First of all, it has produced a sea change in attitudes. The notion that a state can simply say, how I treat my own citizens is nobody else's business, has largely faded from international society in the last 20 or 30 years. Geoffrey Howe made that point very tellingly in his lecture about the role of the Foreign Secretary uh, here in the LSE a couple of years ago. Secondly, there has been agreement on a basic core of human rights standards, which simply didn't exist two generations ago. The prohibition of torture, the prohibition of summary execution, the prohibition of the arbitrary deprivation of liberty are now well established. No state is going to say today that of course we are free to torture someone if we wish. They will either deny that they do it or they will say that what they do doesn't amount to torture. It really has become the international crime that dare not speak its name. Though I'd have to admit 
that actual compliance with those basic core standards is far from satisfactory, and many of the other human rights standards that we hold dear are standards which exist more in a regional context than in a global one. Lastly, there's been the growth in mechanisms for securing compliance with those human rights standards. Now, many of those operate only at the regional level, the European Convention system, for example, which has had such a dramatic effect in this country. But even the global institutions, which have historically been rather weaker than their regional counterparts, have made a considerable difference. Not least because the very fact that it is known that someone is complaining about your treatment and that your case is attracting publicity has often gone a long way towards ameliorating the conditions in which a prisoner was held. During the Iran-Iraq war, it became clear that any prisoner of war whose name found its way onto an International Committee of the Red Cross list of POWs had a far better chance of surviving the conflict than did those whose names were simply not recorded. So what I'd suggest to you in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, is that the debate about whether international <coughs> law can change the world has been conducted historically on a false premise. You take a dreamlike, or if you're one of the bloglodites, a nightmarish vision of what the world might become. You then judge international law harshly because it hasn't achieved that dreamlike vision. The vision that Tennyson put into verse and the authors of the Hague Peace Conferences sought to put into treaty form. But that was never achievable without a radical political transformation for which the world has simply not had the appetite. It is surely better to look at what international law has achieved, for example, since the Second World War, and compare it with what might have been if there had been none of the laws and institutions created in that period. And the world would then have been a much bleaker place, a place in which the way a state treated its citizens was still its exclusive preserve, in which the carving up of the world's oceans and seabeds would have been an almost imperialist snatch-and-grab raid, in which there was no check on the power of states to impose tariffs, quotas, discriminatory barriers to trade, despite the, the history of how that failed in the 1930s. So my answer is yes, international law can change the world, and in a way which would have been far too modest for Tennyson, but which might perhaps have surprised Morgenthau, international law has already changed the world. Whether it will change it further, whether it will change it for the better, is critically dependent upon whether there is the political will to enable it to do so. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. And um, I'm going to throw it open, but uh, I'm going to take a sort of droit de seigneur approach and ask a first uh, question, just an easy one to sort of get us started, Chris. Um, that if, if you look at the current controversy about dealing with the effects of this financial crisis, you can see that governments justify supporting banks on the grounds that financial problems are uniquely contagious and that a bank failure can have consequences for innocent bystanders, etc. And that's a different argument from just an ordinary trading company. 
if you then move to the international arena, you can see that in the trade area, which you referred to, WTO, there are treaties and there is law. In the international financial area, there are not. All international financial regulation is just done on a sort of best endeavors basis. There is nothing which enforces those rules uh, in individual countries. Why do you think that is? And why is it that the political conditions have existed for trade agreements which can be enforced, but doesn't seem to have existed exist for um, financial agreements, even though in a domestic context we would accept that the contagion effects of financial instability are greater than the contagion effects of trade, and yet that argument has not been followed internationally. Well, I, I think, first of all, it would not be quite right to say that there was simply no international legal framework there at all. Uh, there's no, no framework specifically designed to deal with a financial crisis or indeed to deal with financial activity of that kind. Uh, but what you do have are certain general legal principles which apply to financial transactions as much as they apply elsewhere. For example, the limit to the right of regulatory authorities in one state to deal with activity taking place in another. Now, that problem goes back centuries. It deals with matters of transborder crime, transborder activity of all kinds, and it would be applicable in the financial sector as well. But why do we have no um, specific financial agreements comparable, say, to the WTO? The answer is that states haven't shown any interest so far in producing them. And I think one of the reasons for that is that the financial uh, instruments which uh, have recently caused us such difficulty grew up apparently successfully at a time when nobody saw the need for any kind of international regulation of them. I think there was also the problem that the practical reality in the financial world is that power is distributed much more unevenly than it is even in the trading world, that a relatively small group of states are far more significant and far more influential there. And I think there, there simply wasn't the common ground between, between those states who were all competing vigorously with one another or between that group of states and the rest of the international community that would have enabled you to negotiate the sort of agreements that the WTO has produced. And let's face it, the WTO agreements have been a lifetime's work for many people. Each treaty itself probably seemed like a lifetime's work when they were negotiating it. I can... I will pursue this with you later over <laughs> dinner. Um, but uh, let me take, let's take two or three. One in, yeah, this microphone will, on its way to you. Man with a sort of stripy tie. Thank you. Um, it's Christopher, you alluded in, in your lecture to the problem of fragmentation in international law, different bodies of international law butting up against each other and the problems that there are in, in abstracting legal principles from conflicting bodies of law. You also mentioned the importance of international society and concepts of what international society is and how it works, what it exists to do. I wonder to what extent you think that when applying or interpreting international law in a factual scenario where more than one body applies, one's thrown back to having to abstract some sense of what society is trying to achieve at a particular point in time, what international society's priorities really are, and how that might impact on, particularly this year, with Copenhagen coming up, at the resolution of the climate change problem. Thank you. Thanks. I have one or two others before I 
Yeah, front row, white, rather summery sort of jacket. That, that's it. <laughs> Uh, thank you for, for speaking tonight, sir. Um, I'd like to ask you about uh, the political will that you mentioned uh, in the last sentence of your, of your, uh, of your speech. Um, is it, um, wh what are your hopes connected to the presidency of Obama in the United States and the apparent uh, new willingness to adhere to their own values and also to um, an international legal system? And uh, how do you think that apparently changing political will can change the, in, uh, the influence of international law on the world. Thanks. And I'll take just the third one, almost directly behind, check the hat. No, woman with a hat, maybe, can't see, sorry. <laughs> I'll find out now. <laughs> if I was to substitute the word, the word um, world with Africa, what would you, th what would you say um, international law, can international law change Africa? And specific examples would be, uh, you know, Sudan, the Congo, Zimbabwe. I mean, how practically can it change Africa? Thank you. Th this is an examination paper where you have to answer all the questions, by the way. It's <laughs> yes, um, I, I, I'm actually used to setting the exam paper rather than to, to answering the questions. Um, let me begin with the, the question about from the gentleman with the stripy tie. Um, the uh, people with stripy tie should stick together. Mm. I, I think the problem about fragmentation of international law is one which is capable, it's important, but it's capable of being radically overdone. Um, for a long time there has been a school of thought that said oh look, there, is, there are these different courts, each with their own jurisdictions, and they're cutting across one another all the time, and this is terrible. In fact, the next sentence in that analysis was always the same, which is, look as an example at the fact that the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and the International Court of Justice took radically different views about one particular issue, which was the liability of a state for the acts of a parastatal entity, a guerrilla movement, to which it was providing funding and support. It's the fact that that example is always the one that's given, which is the telltale sign. There are no others. For the most part, the different courts with their different jurisdictions make, I think, a very good, good faith attempt to keep an eye on what each other is doing and to look at the bigger picture. You can see that, for example, in several of the recent decisions of the European Court of Human Rights. Um, there are others where perhaps I would be less happy, but that may just reflect the fact that I was on the losing side of some of them. Um, so we won't dwell on the individual cases, if you don't mind. Uh, I think what it calls for, though, is, is two things. First of all, in the making of law, it's very important not to become so obsessed with the particular problem you're dealing with, whether that is climate change, the prohibition of torture, um, or the regulation of the allocation of airwaves by different national radio authorities that you lose sight of the bigger picture, that all of this is part of international law. There's no conflict, as uh, one of my colleagues was suggesting a little while ago, not, not a colleague on the court, I hasten to add, there's no conflict between human rights and international law. Human rights are part of international law. And it's essential, I think, that everyone in making law and in applying it keeps an eye on that bigger picture. If you do that, the problems of fragmentation can largely be accommodated. Um, the other reason why I think it has to be approached that way is I don't actually see any possibility of a hierarchical approach ever being agreed that would give one court or one lawmaking body priority over others. 
Uh, second question, the, the, the summary jacket. Um, in, to a lawyer, of course, summary has a rather different connotation <laughs> from, uh, from that. Uh, I, if you don't mind, I'm going to take the Fifth Amendment on the question of the Obama presidency, because I don't think it's appropriate for a judge in an international tribunal to comment on what a new government in one particular state might do. Uh, but I will say this, which is that I think any willingness, any recognition on the part of governments of the importance of international institutions and the importance of international law is obviously welcome. And it's not, I think, a case of a government sacrificing national self-interest to some rather airy-fairy set of international values. The reality is quite the opposite, which is that the bigger and more powerful the state, the more that it benefits from upholding those values the more that it benefits from upholding the rule of law in international society. Uh, so I don't see it as a conflict between national interest and the rule of law at all. Uh, and I'm delighted that some of the things that have been said recently tend to bear that out. And lastly, the question, can international law change Africa? Again, if you'll forgive me, I'm not going to, to go into the details of specific cases because at least two of the cases you mentioned are already before the International Court of Justice and the third one is before the International Criminal Court. Uh, but I think the answer is, in part, yes, it can. And if you look at, for example, those states that have chosen to bring cases to the International Court in the last 10 years, one of the striking features is how many of those countries come from Africa. Congo, is, DRC, is one of the biggest and most regular clients of the International Court. Uh, the other Republic of Congo, uh, Nigeria, Cameroon, several of the North uh, African Arab countries, uh, Somalia, Djibouti, all of them have been parties, Chad, uh, Burkina Faso, Mali, have all been parties to cases in the International Court in recent years. A third of the states that recognize the compulsory jurisdiction of the court come from Africa, which is a disproportionate number. And that's a remarkable article of faith because, in many ways, it was the African countries that were most disappointed and most aggrieved with the international legal system back in the 1960s over what they perceived, and in many ways, I have to say rightly, as a failure to grapple with the problem of apartheid in Namibia in particular. Uh, but it comes back to the question about political will. Without the political will to make the rules work, you will not achieve the sort of change that I suspect you want to see achieved in Africa. Law is an essential part of that. It's not enough on its own. Thanks. More, yes. I'll take those two in the middle at the back, if you can get us over Hello. Um, you, you mentioned that international law is law that is applied between states. And however, however as we know, has, there's been an increase in um, other powerful non-state actors. Do you believe that the structure of international law is flexible enough to accommodate these non-state actors, or is it only a question of political will to do so? And then to pass it straight in front of you. Yeah. Yeah, hi, thank you for speaking. Um, I have a question in regards to some uh, historical analysis of, say, take, take the Nuremberg trials and uh, bring it in, into today's current economic uh, crisis. Um, do you think it's, it's possible to imagine an uh, international court that could hold people accountable for the financial crisis, uh, for instance, uh, people particularly in the uh, United States, like the Madoff scandal? That's my question. Thanks. 
There was somebody else uh, over there. Yeah, the third one. We'll take that third one. Um, hi. First of all, I'd like to congratulate you on your appointment to the International Court of Justice. Um, my question for you is whether you think um, the intellectual property rights regime under the WTO, whether you consider that as a discriminatory barrier to trade, especially vis-a-vis -vis, um, AIDS vaccines in Africa. Mm. Thank you. Thanks. Right, thank you. Uh, can international law accommodate the position of non-state actors? Well, of course, first of all, in one sense, it has done for a great many years. Uh, although it, it grows up as a system of law between states, and it is only states that directly contribute to making international law, both through custom and through the treaty-making process, they are very heavily indirectly influenced by others. It's more than a century ago that the first NGOs took part in a conference negotiating uh, a treaty. And uh, laws like the laws of war, for example, have applied to uh, secessionist movements to break away entities like the Confederacy in the United States uh, for uh, well over a century and a half. The difficulty, I think, is partly this, that there is no problem today in making certain parts of international law apply to the individual. Human rights law confers rights on the individual. The laws of war, the law on crimes against humanity, the law on genocide impose obligations on individuals as well as conferring rights indirectly on others. The difficulty is rather with entities which aren't states but are more than simply ag conglomerates of individuals be they multinational corporations, uh, be they uh, fleets of merchant vessels, be they a terrorist, um, what a movement like Al-Qaeda. I'm not quite sure what is the appropriate noun to use with Al-Qaeda. And there, not surprisingly, uh, you, you do run into difficulty. Part of the answer to it is that by sorting out the relations between states, you can determine which state is going to regulate a particular activity. For example, uh, whether in the case of a corporation, the state of incorporation is going to be responsible for regulating uh, a particular part of its operations or whether it is going to be left to the state in which those operations take place. I think to a large extent with corporations that has been reasonably resolved. With something like a terrorist movement, it's much more difficult because I, I think we're only feeling our way towards dealing with genuine international terrorism of the kind that has been a phenomenon of the last decade, as opposed to groups that might have carried out operations in more than one country, but were firmly located in one particular state or perhaps two or three adjacent states, and they had clear territorial objectives. And there I think there is a real challenge for international law over the next decade or so. Um, now, the Nuremberg trials and international economic crimes, no, I don't really think so. Um, I, I think there are a number of difficulties with that. The first is that most of the conduct in question, while it might violate the rules of a particular state's legal system, is not contrary to international law. Uh, international law doesn't normally regulate the criminal activity of individuals. The laws of war are an exception there. Uh, secondly, the international legal system, I have to say, is not as well suited as domestic criminal courts to matters of fact-finding. Uh, now, the ICC and even more importantly the ICTY and the ICTR have gone a very long way towards doing that, but I think the people who have worked there would say that 
be the first to say it is a lot more difficult for them without the apparatus of state power to call on than it would be for the courts of New York or the courts of, in London, whatever it happens to be. What I think is more important there is to ensure the proper level of cooperation between states and in particular to overcome what tends to be a sort of populist, uh, no, you can't get justice anywhere but here mentality. Uh, deep down underneath it all, um, the editors of many newspapers around the world are, I think, completely convinced that no Englishman can get justice in the United States, that no US citizen can get justice if sent to Europe, and so on. Uh, it isn't true, and it has to be very firmly resisted. Now, the last, thank you very much for the congratulations. Uh, you then followed it with the sort of exam level question that's a bit beyond my, my particular paper. Uh, I'm not a specialist in intellectual property law, nor indeed in the WTO. Um, the WTO has a difficult compromise to strike in respect of intellectual property. On the one hand, protection of intellectual property rights is essential if you are going to continue investment in the development, for example, of new drugs, new forms of technology, and so on. We don't have intellectual property law just for the fun of it or just for profit. It's long been regarded as an essential part of the protection of innovation. But at the same time, I am extremely sympathetic to the idea that this by raising the price of certain <coughs> products, it has created very considerable difficulties in many parts of the third world. Uh, and I think that is a problem which has got to be addressed. But it's not a problem which, if you like, it's not a lawyer's problem. It's that the difficulty doesn't arise because the law is defective. The law is defective because there is a difficulty here, which states have not so far been willing to grapple with, and nor for that matter have the owners of the intellectual property rights in question. Um, so, yes, I think that is a priority. No, I don't see a, a, a ready and straightforward solution to it. Thank you. Uh, well, gosh, um, it, I, I think we ought to come down here, actually, because we've been up in those seats. We'll take the one <coughs> front row and then Mam and Scarf behind. Uh, can international law uh, help reduce poverty through the first and second generations of rights? Thanks. Two, two immediately behind. Yeah. Hi, uh, I just wanted to ask, um, I know that you have said several times that you don't want to discuss individual cases, and I don't mean to ask you to comment on this specific case, but more to use it as an example of where international like bodies such as the International Court of Justice are completely helpless, and where do they go from here? For example, when the International Court of Justice votes 14 to 1 on an issue such as Israeli settlement expansion, and when the UN all but four states vote against it pretty much every year, then, and Israel still refuses to comply with that, then where, does, where do these bodies go? I mean, they're just advisory bodies. And is there a case, therefore, for them to have power to implement uh, wider change? For example, like a standing army for the UN? Thanks. And then there's right front row here, middle of the front row, green sweater. Um, Thank you. you. You talked about uh, the, pro the difficulties, the difficulties with uh, creating international environmental law, and one of the difficulties we have, of course, is that we are told that there's a rather short time frame we have in which to act. Um, in the absence of being able to force states to become party to treaties, can you envisage any way that uh, customary international law could develop at a pace? fast enough to, to bind all states to this? Yes. 
Right. Can international law help limit poverty or help address the question of poverty? Um, I think this is a much more difficult challenge for a legal system that is sometimes realised. To say that it is unlawful to torture someone is a very different proposition from saying it is unlawful that people live in poverty. Uh, lifting people out of poverty requires a degree of positive action. It requires funds, very considerable bodies of funds. It's extremely difficult to create that change through the legal framework. Now, that's not to say that it's not important. I think that what you referred to as second and third generation rights have helped to play an important role in changing attitudes, in shaping the approach of society towards problems of global poverty. But it would be, I think, a mistake to imagine that adopting a treaty which incorporates rights of that kind is going to lead to the same sort of changes that the Convention Against Torture or the ICCPR have produced in the field of, sort of traditional um, civil and political human rights. Uh, the question you've asked, uh, I, I'm going to have to duck that because that may well come back to the International Court of Justice. Uh, I just say this, and the, in, the court's advisory opinion on the wall, uh, the Israeli security wall, was just that. It was an advisory opinion. The court has two different types of jurisdiction. It decides contentious cases between states, and when it does so, its judgment is binding on those states. And it gives advisory opinions at the request of the United Nations. Now, the wall was an advisory opinion. It wasn't a contentious judgment. Uh, it was referred to quite extensively by the Supreme Court of Israel a few months later in a judgment about the wall, uh, about the, the route the wall was to take in one particular area. Uh, but it isn't as such legally binding. I think it's quite important to, to see that in perspective. Uh, similarly, the General Assembly resolutions are not legally binding. The only binding resolutions that you can get out of the Security Council are ones, after the UN, are ones adopted by the Security Council under Chapter 7 of the Charter. Now, that of course leaves the question of what is the political significance of those resolutions and indeed also what they tell us as commentary, if you like, about what the law is. Uh, but I'm afraid you'll, you'll have to allow me to, to say you must form an opinion about that and maybe you'll appear in front of the court and tell us what it is. <laughs> um, Development of customary international law in the environmental sphere. The trouble with customary international law is that also takes time to develop. Now, it can develop quickly if the conditions are right. A, a rather crude body of principles on exploration of outer space emerged very rapidly in the 1960s once it became clear that that was technologically possible. Um, nobody thought about it much before that date. Uh, customary rules on the environment. I think certain customary principles on environmental law have developed already. And they are, I think, important in informing views, more often in state courts, uh, I have to say, than in decisions in international tribunals. But that's largely because international tribunals haven't, for the most part, been presented with the sort of case that would raise this question. But you won't, I think, readily get the detailed trade-off of who does what outside the context of a treaty. Uh, and that's where, in the end, it comes down to whether the states in question are prepared to make the political compromises necessary to get that treaty up and running and then to enforce it. We'll take one more round and there they are, oh, all three of them at the back there. I hope they're all different questions and not. Uh, since nobody else has brought this up, I, uh, 
I thought maybe you could address some of the concerns with the expansion of international law with regard to sovereignty um, coming across the pond, that is. Um, in, in particular, you, you mentioned that, for example, gun rights were not talked about in the UN, but something like the death penalty is something that has been uh, discussed frequently in various bodies of international law. And isn't there a concern that a overextension of the jurisdiction of international law will not only impinge on a nation's sovereignty, but also on the democratic principles on which those nations are founded? Thank you. Then pass it. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, I just wanted to know, with regards, I know you don't want to comment on the case that's currently with the African at the ICC, but I just wanted to know why does it take so long and cost such huge amounts of money to bring somebody like that to justice because it's taken such a long time and, you know, obviously this is giving other dictators, you know, the opportunity to get away with murder, probably, because um, it takes so long. Why does it take so long to bring someone to trial? Thanks. And then last one. Thank you. Um, yeah, you finished off by saying that international law is quite dependent on political will um, being formed in various parts of the world. Um, now, obviously, in various parts of the world, there's different levels of political will. And as a result of that, you've been able to have more advanced um, formations of international law, um, for example, in the European Union. Um, so my question is whether you think it makes more sense to think of international law not as a world, not, not in a global sense, whether, whether that's um, a bit artificial, whether it would make more sense to start from the bottom up and uh, let international law follow, where, follow the formation of international societies as opposed to starting with this idea of worldwide international law and then kind of dividing that up into, or letting that, trying to impose that on states from the top down. Right, thank you very much. Um, is the concerns about sovereignty and the effect of international law there? I think sovereignty is a term which you need to look rather carefully at when you use it. Uh, people always tend to refer to sovereignty when they want to do something which they're not prepared to justify by ordinary rational debate. Uh, when members of parliament want to, to do something which they know is not going to be very popular, uh, they always refer to the sovereignty of parliament. Um, likewise, states tend to talk about sovereignty in much the same way as there's an old English saying, the, the more that he spoke of his honour, the harder we counted our spoons. Um, I always feel there's an element of that with sovereignty, but look, sovereignty has never been unlimited. It couldn't possibly be. The sovereign power of a state to, to do something is inevitably going to bump up against the sovereign powers of all the other states. And unless you say that one state's sovereignty is worth more than another's, which I don't think is a proposition that's acceptable to anyone, uh, unless you say that, you're going to have to have some form of legal regulation which determines which sovereign power takes priority in any particular case. Uh, the firearms example, I, I would never have dreamt of giving that had I not come across it on a website. I won't say whose website, but it wasn't a sort of trivial organization by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, it, it, it's plainly moonshine that there is no way in which the United Nations could or would want to take away firearms from people in Georgia. Um, but uh, the, that's Georgia, USA, for, for want of any, any doubt about that. Um, but 
the death, the death penalty is an interesting example. You see, that, that's very much part of a human rights debate which you have, which has been going on since the Second World War. It's now, I think, agreed that the sovereign power of the state is not, does not extend to doing certain things, such as torturing somebody. It is not, I think, at the moment globally accepted that the sovereign power of the state does not extend to executing somebody provided that there has been a proper trial with respect for standards of due process and provided the crime is serious enough. I think at the moment there is no general agreement on a rule of international law to that effect. There is in certain regional contexts the European Court of Human Rights, and this goes back to one of the, the other questions asked, the European Court of Human Rights has said that Europe is a death penalty free zone, that this is not a, a community within which the death penalty is acceptable any longer. And that's for roughly a quarter of the states of the world. Likewise, the European Court of Human Rights has adopted regional standards in various other areas. I think in the end it comes down to the question of balancing the different sovereignties that exist in the world. And secondly, how you balance those sovereignties against other values which international society has come to triumph, such as the, the rights of the individual. On the question of democracy, I have to confess, I, I have considerable sympathy for that point. Because at the moment, the process of making international law is probably subject to far less scrutiny in most democratic societies than is the process of making domestic law. But that's a matter that the, each society is going to have to sort out for itself, what it does, for example, about scrutiny of treaty making. The society that has taken that perhaps furthest is the United States, where the debates on treaties in the Senate have not been regarded as universally helpful outside the United States. So it's, it's, it's a difficult area to tread. Why does it all take so long? Why has it all been so slow? Well, forgive me if I don't go into the details, because, not least because the International Criminal Court is not the court I, I sit on, and I, I, I'm not clear as to what is going on within its, uh, its walls. But I think it is important to see this in perspective. At the end of the Second World War, with the first batch of international trials, some of them would not come anywhere near meeting what we regard as standards of due process today. Um, one case, admittedly tried by a British military court, but with members from another uh, allied power as well, and applying international law, tried the captain of a US submarine for murdering the survivors of a sunken merchant vessel. The trial lasted a day. The defendant was convicted and sentenced to death. The evidence against him was entirely unsworn written testimony by witnesses who weren't called to give oral evidence because they were somewhere else in Europe at the time the trial was taking place. There was only one copy in court of the only legal textbook to which the court was going to refer. That was the prosecutor's copy, but he did lend it to the defence counsel over the lunch break for the defence <laughs> counsel to have a look at it. Now, that's the other side of the coin. You can do the whole thing far too quickly. And I think part of what's happened in the ICC and the ICTY is a desperate attempt, first of all, to make sure that standards of due process are complied with. Secondly, to meet the demands for victim involvement in the legal process, which has turned out to be much more difficult and much more time-consuming than people expected. Thirdly, to grapple with the fact that you're almost always conducting proceedings through an interpreter, which slow, will slow the process enormously. It more than doubles the length of a criminal hearing. So I think there are good reasons why it has been difficult, but those good reasons aren't in themselves enough. In order to do justice, you have got to do justice expeditiously, 
And that is clearly something that international society has got to look very hard at. And lastly, well now, the European Union would tell you, the, the European Union's court would tell you straight away that it is heresy to regard European Union law as a form of international law. Um, I have, in fact, been told that in the European Court of Justice. Uh, I think it would be a mistake to imagine that international law can be broken down into a series of regional agreements. First of all, how do you define the regions? Um, if you look at the regional breakdown to, into the different regional groups in the United Nations, you find some really quite interesting and striking features. Within the Asian group at the last election for the International Court, the competition was between a Jordanian and a Filipina. Now, not everyone would immediately see Jordan and the Philippines as having a community of interest for the purposes you're talking about. Um, Cyprus counts as an Asian state for these purposes, which again may be a surprise to many Cypriots. <laughs> the, so, some problems can only be tackled globally, and some problems are ones which have always been tackled globally. There's no reason, for example, for the law on diplomatic privileges and immunities to be any different between Asia, Africa, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, South America, North America. It's the same issue everywhere, the same basic attitudes. But that doesn't stop different regions, if they want to, adopting regional agreements which will move faster or move in a particular direction. So long as in doing that, they take account of their obligations to the rest of the world. And that can sometimes run you into difficulties. For example, there was a very acrimonious debate in the European Court of Human Rights a few years ago in a case about whether Britain had violated an individual's right of access to court under Article 6 of the European Convention by holding that a foreign state, Kuwait I think it was, was entitled to sovereign immunity when it was sued for torture in the English courts. And there was a lot of, of strident comment about the importance of the European Convention and European rights. In fact, the European Court split 9-8 in its decision in that case majority being in Britain's favour. But of course, the European Convention doesn't bind Kuwait. And Kuwait would have been quite entitled to say, well, whatever agreement you European countries may have negotiated amongst yourselves, you've also got to have regard to the obligations that each of you has to us as a non-European state. I think that's a certain danger that exists in an excessive uh, affection for regionalism. Chris, I'm going to use the sovereignty of the chair. Um, to determine that this court is up. Um, and I think you've all seen tonight a huge amount of evidence uh, for why all Chris's colleagues are so pleased to see him go to the... <laughs> um, sorry, that came out a bit. Uh, uh, to the International uh, Court of Justice. Uh, we, um, we will miss his wise counsel in the school I hope, however, this won't be the last time he appears on a school platform. Uh, but we are, of course, uh, honoured that the ICJ should have once again chosen an LSE professor to fill the British seat at the court. And 